Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Two, one, two. It's me, Johnny Doom. Hello. <laughs> All right, we're in business. Jonathan Doom. Cheers. Raise a glass. <laughs> My old friend. I was thinking on the way over here, it's been six years since we jumped on the mics together. Really? Six that long? Years. Yeah. Well, six years this summer is the closure of Kerrang Birmingham. And there won't have been an occasion. Obviously, we've seen each other. We've kept in touch. We've hung out. Yeah. But we certainly haven't sat down in a scenario like this with the record button on, probably for the best as well. The record <laughs> button hasn't been on for a lot of the chats that we've had over the last few yes, years. Yes, what, what are we going to talk about? Everything. Everything. I'm going to talk about you. Um, I want to talk about your career in music. Obviously, we're going to talk about Kerrang! then and now. But I want to pick you up on something you said online the other day about Alan Partridge, the new season, this time with Alan Partridge, yeah. and uh, yourself not being a fan. Uh, it wasn't so and much. And that's someone who's a long-term fan, obviously, of the character and all the shows he's done. Well, it's early days yet because I've only watched the first episode of the new series and I just thought it was a bit odd. Um, somebody said he was acting a little bit like his Stan Laurel character. That a lot more so in episode two, I felt really? that. Really? Yeah. Really? You yeah. know when actors go so down the rabbit hole with their certain method approach that they can't shake off that one character? Like I find Tom Hardy is like that. Yeah. Like it's almost like every character he plays has that sort of 
bone element of you can't really decipher what the hell he's saying. Yeah. I think sometimes these characters just get so embedded in people's psyches, don't they, that they, they can't really escape or shake them off. Also, Alan's, you know, he's multifaceted, but you you expect Alan kind of reactions to things. And I thought it was a bit different in that scenario, but it's a good scenario having a one style show. Is it the one show? The one married? show, yeah. It, it reminds me of The Office. Yeah, with the kind of camera movements and the awkward cuts, and it seems to me to be a lot more in that school of comedy yeah. than the old school. But I rewatched the other night, um, "Aha, Knowing Me, Knowing You." Yeah, and I mean that style of humor just wouldn't work in today's world, would it? So he obviously had to update it and switch things up because yeah, it's got to be topical and it's got to kind of reference some of the things that people are talking about, you know, in 2019, uh, which as we know a lot of the time now is political things. Well, there's or... an episode in Knowing Me, Knowing You where he gets the Playboy model out and yeah. it's a man who's now a woman and he finds out that the woman used to be a man and he's like, oh, disgusting. Yeah. And obviously now that would be people would be in uproar, wouldn't they? Same, same way people are picking up on Ace Ventura, the first film. Finkel you know, and Einhorn. Uh, where, it yeah. t- where it turns out... Einhorn is, is Finkel. Sean Young's character at the end, you yeah. know, um, all that business, people are up in arms about it. But we'll talk about that later because things change, don't they? But yeah, I just, I need to give it time, but I just thought he wasn't fully partridge for me. No, uh, and I, think, I do agree with that. I think I'm always going to miss a bit of Amando Anucci influence as well. I think those new writers have got skills. You know, I like I like some of their writing. It's clever, but they haven't quite got that edge that the first few series had. Like, I tell you who I do like is Tim Key, the yeah. actor who works the, the Twitter board. They have a really good rapport yeah, yeah. and dynamic, and you can see that they bounce off each other really well. That's yeah. probably the best part about the whole show for me. But yeah, I've still got to watch episode two. Well, so this we... is what I heard, dude. Yeah. Episode two, they lost 1.5 million listeners the other night, apparently. What, uh, viewers, watchers. sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, half the audience have just tapped out already. Wow. Savage. Interesting. Um, and we should also talk about Leaving Neverland, not the sequel to Finding Neverland. No, I watched that, uh, <laughs> I watched that last night, uh, the episode one aired. Uh, so I was eager to go and see what the reactions were to it because it's quite a, you know, it's a very long documentary. 80 minutes, I think. And it's lost lots of testimonials and harrowing stories about abuse. Um, what was your thoughts going in, knowing what you knew already? What was your take and position on the whole scandal before seeing this documentary last night? Uh, well, I always liked Michael Jackson. I always found him an interesting character. Always enjoyed his music when I was growing up, whether it was Thriller or Off the Wall. First album I ever bought was um, And he seemed like a fascinating character because he was into... Uh, film Spielberg and uh, fantasy and he wanted to live in his own brilliant fantasy world and I could relate to that as I got older I didn't like his music I didn't like bad yeah and what about didn't like dangerous dangerous Um, not even from a production point of view uh, no no no, not from a production point of view I didn't like it Um, and that was when allegations started to come out and I always thought there might be a bit of truth in them. Uh, definitely thought there might be a bit of truth in them just because of the way he was always seen around young people. Uh, always seemed to have these people following him round. And you just wonder, is it healthy, you know, or is it just innocent, you know? Um, 
and then obviously there was court cases as well and, and, and him paying off people and settling things out of court, which then make you question it as well. And then you look at his fan base and they're fully supportive of him. So you've got this complete pulling at different sides all the time. Uh, classic conspiracy theory material. I just finished reading that John Ronson book, Them. Yeah. And that explores all of that, like these extremist characters that yeah, where, where have people... such conflicting Yeah, it's almost like you can't and... seem to get to the bottom yeah. of it. But I've always had my suspicions that he's had an interest in younger boys. And I've always had a suspicion that he has, has probably acted in an untoward manner in some respect. You know, um, and this documentary, it just seemed so. It didn't seem like a cuckoo conspiracy theory. No, oh, there's no. a hole in that foot, like theory that, no. like, it didn't seem not at flawed all. or convoluted, did it? No, I mean, it just looked like these guys who really looked up to him when they were young and then had a chance to meet him. And then Jackson does this strange ritual where he meets the parents and he. He makes he make sure he goes into their home and makes friends with the mum and builds up trust. And then before you know it, he's asking to share the same room or have sleepovers. And the mum mum and dad are fine with it because he's already been in the house and they're starstruck as well. So this whole method he uses of kind of getting in with the family and taking them on trips and befriending the boy and getting closer to him and breaking down that trust kind of thing, it just seems a bit like... Well, it's the classic tactic of any predator, isn't it? Is you yeah. use your star power to influence and manipulate. And and that's why the parents, you know, they they felt like he was one of their own. You know, he was coming into their house. And, and as a cynic, you'd say that would be his method of getting, doing anything he can to get nearer that child. You pointed something out in the car over here as well to me, which was that the most harrowing thing about all of it is that these little boys, well, mm. then little boys, now men, but were clearly in awe and in love with him. Yeah, I mean, it's pe- people are saying, well, why didn't they come out with this? You know, the things they always say around abuse, you know, why have they waited? But when you watch the documentary, the thing I get is that they, this was one of their first encounters with somebody in a sexual way, and it's all they knew at the time. And they not only looked up to him as a performer, but he was also, I suppose, their lover, you know, and treated him like, it was it was his partner. So they couldn't help building up feelings. And then you also see in the documentary that when he finds a new boy or a new exciting new guy to have around his house, the old ones get thrown out or get sidelined. And that's incredibly confusing for them, you know, and incredibly upsetting. So if this is true, because we don't know, and we have to say that. Of course. Um, if it is true... He's used his powers as, a, as an adult to groom, to get what he wants and to pick up and discard people when he wants to, you know. I think in some weird ways kept friends with these people and their families as well. I think, you know, somebody said in the documentary he bought their house for them as a gift, you know, and, and that was around the time of his trial, almost like a silencer, almost like a kind of... You well, know. it's a payoff, isn't it? Yeah. Essentially. So he hasn't necessarily made enemies of these children he seems to have kept him with the families and and he still has people who support him like macaulay culkin you know uh, where nothing may have happened in that respect you know 
But I think lots of us out there as parents or just as general fans. Of well, that's music. what I wanted to ask you. You're a dad, so you can comment on it a lot more. If Justin Bieber was like, I want Lauren, your daughter, to come and spend the night at my house and you're not allowed to come, is there any scenario in which you're going to allow that to happen? No. The obvious answer is no, right? No, and I think gender's important in this one because I, okay. think, I think because Michael Jackson's male, and because he's built up this, I want to have sleepovers and watch movies and eat popcorn with my little buddies. My little buddies I think that kind of almost gets him off the hook. I think if he said, I want four girls around for the night. Then he, eyebrows would definitely be raised. Yeah, or people are just Well, what about that. if Lady Gaga asked Lauren for, for a sleepover at her house? Again, you're probably still not going to say yes unless you're allowed to be in the room and there, it's are you? It's just a strange Because it is it's a strange It's just a strange There's no scenario. way about looking and, at any other way. And I think that makes me even more sceptical when someone says, oh, well, it's childlike. It's just him being the, the child he is. You know, I know that Michael Jackson's got some childlike qualities because I've been following him for years, the same as everyone else has. You know, he likes to play. He's got a fair ground in his garden. He loves that childlike quality. But that just adds another sinister element to it. Well, he's clearly unwell or was clearly unwell, wasn't he? And I think if you're brought up in a household where your dad is this tyrant dictator character who abused him to get the best performances out of him. Not only that, but you've got to imagine when he was going out on tour at the age of five, six, whatever he was in the Jackson 5, his older brothers would have been up to all sorts and there would have been groupies and there would have been girls and there would have been scenarios where the girls were playing and messing around with him as the little cute kid. So that would have been his introduction and exposure, wouldn't it, to sexual encounters. He wouldn't have been ready for it. He would have been, I guess, robbed of his innocence very early on. And so he obviously retracted into his own head as an escapist method to protect himself mm. and has then lived in this perpetual state of childlike, warped yeah, it, it, reality. It, it, it does seem like he's had a different upbringing and a very strange upbringing, you know, where he's kind of almost had everything he wants as well because there's always been money around. And he Apart can... from perhaps regular friendships. Yeah, yeah, and totally. I did seem to be of the opinion watching this documentary last night that these relationships started as friendships, but then obviously over time they develop into something else there's because also he a part shifts in, it in that direction. There's also a part in the documentary where it seems like he sends for these people. He'll like discover them. Someone will go, oh, here's a dancer. He dances just like you. And he almost kind of looks at yeah. it and goes, I need to meet this guy and... and, and and you know, just and then the system starts to go into place, as I was saying before. And if it's if it was fully innocent, then it it wouldn't look so weird to the rest of us. But for years, we've been questioning the fact that he has these people to to stay with him for long periods of time, and why he's paying off parents as well. You know, when it comes to court cases, so you know. Uh, from watching the documentary, which I do urge people to watch. I think there is another part as well. I think there's yeah. going to be a second episode. Yeah, there episode. is a second half. But I would urge people to watch it and form their own opinions because some of the stuff that comes out sounds to me like it could well be true. Yeah. And what is also illuminating and interesting is that so many people, because he is such an old school star in that all-powerful sense of the a world, mega star, really. is that there's still people all over the internet outright defending him and saying there is no way he'd be capable of this. This is Michael Jackson. And that's a really interesting point in the whole thing as well, I think, because nowadays there's no stars like that around. 
And so if allegations against the likes of Gaga, Bieber, whoever came out now, they wouldn't be that same faction of fan base blindly mm. defending them, would they? Because that old school star in that larger than life sense of the word, I think is largely absent in today's culture, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's someone as big as Michael Jackson. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen it recently with R. Kelly, of course, you know, um, somebody else who's who's now in the spotlight after years of just doing exactly what you want. And we live in a culture where maybe that's got negative points, but it's also got positive points. And the Me Too movement and things like that is making people look at things a little bit closer than they may, may have done years ago. Same way that we look at the BBC differently in the 70s and things like that. So um, there's nothing wrong with people being critical, but yeah, you face an army of dedicated fans, people who loved him. And I said today on Facebook, I said, Michael Jackson fans remind me of flat earthers <laughs> <laughs> in the sense that they'll deny anything. They'll just, they'll just put anything together to, to, to get their ideology across, you know, in the face of all this evidence. Um, and they are, they're really, you know, really very certain of themselves and... Uh, and of his innocence. And I'm not. I'm not certain. I, You know, I, I could go either way, but the evidence for me is stacking in one direction. It is, isn't it? Final question on this topic before we get into yourself and the Johnny Doom journey. Yes. Um, you used to be somebody who was very vocal online. You'd often use it as a tool for comic expression. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to love that about you. Um, you'd often yep. speak your mind very openly. You'd invite people who are friends with you on Facebook into public open discussions and debates. And you've always been someone who would add like strangers and listeners and people that are just aware of you through your work as friends on your personal Facebook account. Um, So you've always had this quite almost like a discussion board forum type approach to social networking. And I've noticed you've stepped back a lot from that in recent times. Obviously that's a conscious move on your part. I wanted to know why. Um, yeah, I had a lot of fun with Facebook. Uh, not so much Twitter because it hasn't got as many characters. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of fun with Facebook uh, for a good few years because you could talk about things that were topical. Uh, you could talk about news stories. You could put your own little slant on them. As I said, I did earlier with the Michael Jackson flat earth thing. Uh, you can have some humor in it and then you can create these online discussions. But what I was finding over time especially with regard to the social climate, um, the way people are reacting, intersectional politics, Brexit, uh, the left versus the right, the emergence of the alt-right. I just found that everything I put seemed to put me in some kind of uh, political ballpark for somebody or it would just kick off some kind of argument which then left the people in the comments section arguing with each other. And I just, as time went on, I thought to myself, I'm just reacting to all these news stories and I'm trying to be all topical, a bit like a vlogger, really, a bit like a vlogger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe Rogan, he types An instigator as well. You're trying to stimulate debate and almost like poke the fire and watch the flames grow. But then obviously the flames got a bit too big and a bit too out of control and a bit too silly. Then when you start to talk about things like religion or politics or Brexit, you just end up upsetting so many people or conflicting so many opinions. And people are writing all these comments and you're reading them and you're also trying to do your work and look at So your notifications are blowing up and they're yeah. distracting you. And, yeah. you're, and you're trying to pick up your daughter from school and you're trying to, I don't know, do a band or whatever I'm trying to do. And then I'm constantly going back and checking on these scenarios. 
And I just thought to myself, something's got to give. So I stopped posting and I stopped reacting to news stories on there. I still read them and I still, still look at things myself, but I stopped posting them up there. And suddenly I got this like wedge of time back in my life and less anxiety. That was the big thing. Less, that imping, that yeah. impending fear and dread of the, what's this comment going to cause. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and just what's less the... anxiety. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm not some big political character i'm just someone who likes to chat and likes to have a bit of fun but this is actually making me uh, uneasy and it's also opening me up to maybe people thinking i've got viewpoints that i haven't because i like to be humorous and i like to sometimes be controversial so it can, you know i just think that taking a step back sometime sometimes is a good thing to do and as a result, uh, I'm a lot happier, so that's good. <laughs> and you're a lot more creative. You've got yeah. back various bands on the go. And, yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, so let's go back to the, I guess, the 80s, really, for you, because you've always been involved in politics. You've always had a active interest in debate. Mm. Um, and obviously that comes from art and literature and all the things that you grew up loving, be that cinema or music or whatever. Um, and obviously your background is punk music and yeah. hardcore. Um, talk to me about your early years as a, I guess, developing songwriter, musician, and somebody who's interested in the arts and in politics, and where all that came from, the influences on you as a young man? Um, I got into punk from people older than me, being around me, um, who were getting into bands like The Clash, Stiff Little Fingers, uh, the uh, Crass, Crass was the big one, Conflict, all those type of bands. So I was hanging around with older people who liked that, and I just was interested. It looked great. It looked really uh, fresh and exciting. You know, short, angry songs, interesting lyrics. Started reading crass records. So I was getting all this politics feeding into my brain. And also from punk as well, you get the idea that you can pick up instruments, even if you can't play and, and make something, which was really Do important. Do it yourself. Yeah. Uh, so I couldn't play, but I, I bought a big uh, bass guitar. And um, and just started to practice in my room while listening to all this punk stuff. Uh, and bits of metal as well. Metal was starting to creep in. I was listening to things like Metallica and Slayer alongside Crass and the Celtic Frost and this kind of stuff. And it was just a great time. I was living at my mom's. So I wanted to find out ways in which to think in, in new ways. And I wanted to rebel a little bit against my parents, which I saw as quite safe and a middle-class lifestyle. Was this in Birmingham you grew up? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I grew up in a fairly middle-class place, you know, ran by Sutton Coalfield, and I wanted to move out and see the world, you know. But, uh, but yeah, so I started doing music, really, with mates who lived at school around there. And uh, our influences were punk bands that were doing well. Uh, and we also used to go to Warsaw and to a pub in Spark Hill called The Mermaid and watch bands whether it was punk bands or bands that were just starting, like Napalm Death and things like that. And there was a bit of a scene in a community. So I started to dress more punk and then felt like I was part of something. So you, you know, uh, and and that was really the start of me getting into the punk scene and forming the band Doom. And then that being my life for a good few years of, making punk music, touring, making albums, doing John Peel sessions, yeah, yeah, going yeah. to Japan, going to Europe, um, and just actually, yeah, getting out there and playing. And Well, let's not brush over all of it. Let's go in. What was the modus operandi for Doom in terms of their lyrical content and 
the statements that you were trying to make? Because I know that the intellectual element to that band was at the forefront, right? Well, as much as it was sonically. Well, it was me and Brian. An attack. Yeah, it was me and Brian mainly because we used to go to gigs together and we lived round the corner from each other and we used to sit and listen to music in his bedroom. Um, and it was all punk stuff. It was all politically uh, challenging the status quo, whether it was coming from an anarchist perspective or a socialist perspective. Um, and I suppose animal rights played a big part. Feminism, in well. gender politics, all of that. Yeah, not on. not so much gender politics. I suppose feminism in the sense of equality. We used yeah. to always talk about equality um, and ecology as well. You know, looking after the planet and not abusing it and not polluting it. So all the, I suppose all the things you could say are hippie tropes, really, because they're all the things that you want when you're young. You want to save the planet. You see all this injustice in the world and you want to do something about it. Uh, and, and bands like Crass were saying, we can, we can do something about it. We just need to get together and, and do this and, and shout about it and we can make a change, you know. And you're very idea, idealistic when you're young. Of so, course. So that was very much part of Doom. And we modelled the music on bands like Discharge and Chaos UK and Swedish stuff where it was short to the point the lyrics were shortened to the point. You could get a message from it and just wrote loads and loads of songs and, and, and got out there, really, and played with loads of punk bands. And Birmingham at that point, obviously, you had Napalm Death, you had, obviously, GBH. Was there quite a thriving punk scene at that time going on in the early 80s? Or yeah, was Doom a tiny bit later? Doom was a little bit later than the bands like GBH and uh, Drongos for Europe and all those kind of bands. We were a little bit of a different generation and we had a bit more metal coming through at the time. Our stuff was a bit heavier, gruffer vocals, you know. Things were getting more extreme musically. Um, and punk, punk in Birmingham is interesting because punk, as much as we've had quite a lot of punk in Birmingham, it's never been an overtly, overly political punk scene. It's never been completely anarcho-punk DIY. It's always had a street punk element, a bit of an oi element, yeah. and, a, and a lot of a fun element to it as well, um, where politics gets in the way a little bit. Um, so we were quite holier than thou in our punk politics when we were in Doom because we were coming straight from that idea. Did you meet with resistance from the local punk community because of that? No, not really. I mean, Birmingham had a lot of different stuff going on and you could play political gigs and then the next week have a fun gig and then have a metal gig. So it wasn't too bad. But Doom definitely resonated politically with places that are a little bit more active, like maybe Leeds, Bradford. Yeah, uh, near Model Army territory, like around there. Yeah, where people are a little bit more serious about their activism, maybe. Uh, and in terms of the international response to Doom, because there's been several Americans over the years that have met you and fanned out, like, oh, my God, it's Johnny Doom from Doom, Laura Jane Grace from Against Me is one, Jesse Leach at the Q&A I did in yep. Birmingham the other week, the greatest story which we'll tell later with Mr. Philip Anselmo, yeah, the, yeah. the best ident ever recorded in radio history. But uh, <laughs> how soon did you get out there and start touring further afield than the UK, as you mentioned Europe before, and, and did you make it any further afield than that? Uh, quite early on, we got out to Europe uh, in about 88 and started going around Holland, Belgium, Germany. So like squat scene? Italy. Well, they've got a different scene in Europe. They're called youth houses and right. the squats as well. 
Um, and then there's sometimes venues as well. But the difference in Europe is a lot of their music, their underground music, is subsidised. The government will give arts funding or music funding uh, to help venues and to help people be able to put things on, which, as we know in the UK, is pretty much non-existent. You've got to do everything yourself. Uh, and even if the band wants some crisps, you've got to go and buy them yourself. Um, so they do get a little bit of help out in Europe and it, it helps their scene and their art scene and their music be a bit more buoyant. So we're playing lots of different places. Uh, but the punk scene itself is very good, the DIY scene, because it's, you know, it kind of works underneath the major music business. So you can do something without contracts. You can do something without hotels and riders and tour buses. You can go in a van, sell all your own merch, make all your own money. And as you know, it'd be DIY and not corporate. You know, you're not on, you haven't got to answer to a big label, you're just doing it yourself. Uh, so we did that and uh, we had a lot of fun and we got into lots of different situations. And can we, we talk about the scenario where you got your fee stolen? Yeah, yeah, can we talk about that? One of oh. my favorite stories ever with the school and the kid. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, we we're in Germany, uh, we we're in Germany and uh we stayed at some house and clive uh, our drummer fell asleep uh, i think with a girl uh, and he woke up the next day and we were just all about to leave get back in the van and he said the, the tour money's gone you know which was about 400 euros or something like that and we searched round, searched everywhere and uh, we couldn't find it and we asked the girl he was with, and she was like, I don't know anything about it. And then somebody else said that there was a boy in the flat who's now not there. Uh, so we said, right, we need to find him. And they said, well, he's at the university. So we got in the van and all piled down to the university, just ran onto the grounds, went into the student union, dragged this guy out onto the uh, car park in front of everyone sitting eating their food in the canteen, got him on his knees, and he bought a gun with the money. So he took the gun out of his pocket. And I think it was a German tour manager with us, put it to his head and said, did you buy this gun with our money? And he said, yes. And he goes, we're going to go back to the shop now, take the gun back and get our money back. And the guy was like, okay, okay. And we marched, got him in the van, went back to the gun shop gave it back, told the guy behind the counter what had happened. He gave us our money back, and then we left town. <laughs> Imagine the look on the students' faces if you saw that, someone getting dragged out of the canteen and onto the front of the lawn. On then, It's like something out of a fucking war movie, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that was, I guess, not regular occurrences, but you, as you say, you find yourself in these situations because there's no rules, there's no laws, there's no like systems in place. You're kind yeah. of just winging it and making it up. And yeah, all sorts of things You come across cowboys and fucking... Yeah. Chances, don't you? And um, when we first went, there was border crossings. You know, the border crossings came down in the 90s, but uh, but in the 80s, you had to go through. And when we got to the Italy-Yugoslavia border, they, they hated the look of us, and they just made us wait there for five hours in the van sitting there and then got us out with machine guns pointed on us, searched all our stuff for about another three hours, and then finally, when they couldn't find anything, said, go through you know but it was hell uh and then some some nights are the best nights ever you know when you're playing in front of just loads of people and you're having a party and things like that but yeah touring was fun but as i said it was diy wasn't corporate and we did that for a while um 
until I suppose fractures started happening in the band, really. And that was just the classic case of people going in different directions, musically, personally? Uh, I'd say a little bit personally. You know, I don't usually talk about this, but Brian, who's in Doom, you know, still in Doom now, he's a very political guy, he's very serious about his politics. But I'd also say he's a little bit moody and a little bit dogmatic at times with it as well, you know. if you Stubborn, if you, immovable. Well, no, if you don't subscribe to their politics... They're funny with you, you yeah, know, yeah. If yeah. you if you don't do exactly the right thing, you know. And I was a little bit more free thinking, I suppose. I didn't like the idea of being told what to do by anybody, whether it's politically or you know. I like to make my own way. I'm quite stubborn myself in that respect. Um, and I think the politics of being in a band like that can sometimes get a bit oppressive, you know, where where you you're all you've always got to be a certain line, a certain political line. And I found that quite hard to follow as the 90s came because obviously I was turning 20 and I was wanting to meet different people and go and do different things. And as much as I love the punk scene, I was still involved with the punk scene, uh, there was part of me that wanted to go and explore and meet other people, you know, and that's what I did in the 90s, really. I got in... I got more into the rock scene. I got into dance music. I got heavily into hip hop uh, and just started um, diversifying my friend group away from just punks, just activists and anarchists. You know. Was there always that suspicion of emerging genres like rave, like hip hop within alternative and underground guitar based scenes as we've seen over the years, like a, a Good example would be a band like Machine Head incorporating elements of new metal and the old thrash vanguard going, oh, this is bullshit. Was there always that, that kind of hatred of outside genres from within the own community that you belong to? Well, I think punk's a bit of a weird one because as much as it's free and it's DIY, it's a bit of a cult, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean that in the sense of everyone's brainwashed, but I think... When you have a, a scene that's like that, where everyone kind of has the same politics or is supposed to have the same politics, and you know, it, you're all supposed to be, say, vegetarian or you're all supposed to hate police or you're all supposed, then it, if you all have that same herd like behavior, and then somebody stands up and says, Well, just a sec, I question that, you know. And then that person's a traitor, or get that person. It's like off. Bolshevik stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Like Stalinism. And and it's, you see it on Facebook as well. A lot of punks or a lot of left wingers will only speak to other left wingers. They won't have one right wing wing person on their page. Yeah, yeah. If you it, voted Brexit, then I can't talk to you. Yeah, they'll just delete them, and yeah. they just want. And them that's out. not a way to solve issues, is it? Just to kind of pretend like it's not there. Well, that's specifically what I didn't want to do in yeah. the nineties. I wanted to meet everyone. I wanted to go into the depth of lots of different other areas punk was one that i've been into but i was interested in what dance music was all about what hip-hop culture was all about and also started getting into the occult satanism um black metal and uh, from an intellectual point of view as much as from like that visceral gut level if uh, you want to just explore the philosophies behind these yeah, music, wanting to know what the scene's about, wanting to know what all the imagery's about, reading books about it, you know, but trying to just get more breadth on different viewpoints and different scenes and different subcultures. 
And that was probably, arguably, the best decade for subcultures, wasn't it, the 90s? The 90s was fantastic for new things coming through, feeling like they're fresh. I mean, you could argue rave was just disco again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the emergence of disco, which had happened, you know, in the in the seventies, like disco was perhaps more of a middle class, suedo intellectual kind of chic thing, though, wasn't it? Whereas rave was a bit more working class. Well, well I guess disco initially well, started well, dis- as dis- ghettoized kind of. Disco's a big gay thing, as yeah, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine yeah. it's about people finding themselves in a yeah. place where they can express themselves in a free environment. But rave was more about people discovering hedonism, mm-hmm. just down night- and dirty, nitty gritty. Uh, with lots of new technology to make the music bigger and better. And then lots of people going out to fields with big sound systems and drugs. So it was, bit, you know, definitely about drugs and hedonism. Some some would say it was only about that, you know. But, well, the second summer of love is often what it's referred to, yeah. isn't it? And exactly at the same time. That when was, ecstasy was pure. Yeah. <laughs> but exactly at the same time, everyone's losing it in a field to some bleepy dance music. You've also got grunge happening at the same time and black metal. Um, and gangster rap. And gangster and, rap yeah. and all these things. And they're all quite dangerous. That's the other thing. I yeah, like yeah. a bit of danger. You know, I want to find the new thing that people are talking about and why are they talking about it. So... So, yeah, 90s was the perfect environment for that kind of thing. And that's what I did. I soaked myself into the whole lot of it to the point where I probably burnt out on all of it, (laughs) you know, and became a mess, you know. What were you doing career-wise? How were you living? How were you making money Uh, after you leave Doom? And assumedly Doom was never about making money, but did it give you enough money to survive, to pay rent? Not really, because we put it back into the band, uh, but a lot of us used to be on the dole. Uh, and I'd occasionally go and help my dad or do a bit of part-time work. So very hand-to-mouth stuff. Yeah, yeah, eating um, spaghetti hoops and just getting by, really. Yeah. But you all pulled together, a bit like a community, you know. Um, and then towards the mid-90s, I started to get sick of just sitting around and doing bands and, you know, not having much direction. So I started working behind the scenes at gigs, um, putting up the lighting and sound equipment at the NEC, the NIA, um, working, you know, quite weird hours. But, you know, it was nice having money coming in, working in the music industry. You're seeing bands as well, walking backstage. It's all quite fascinating and interesting. It still feels as well, having been on a few tours over the last few years myself and really just exploring that world for the first time, the live side of things still feels like it's a club and a gang and you're all in it together and it has that community feel even now still whereas everything else i think has been sort of whitewashed with corporate kind of you know monotony i do still feel like when you meet certain bands they have that kind of old school traveling gang mentality they've got the old school motorhead style road crew the people who work in venues are kind of on the same page and i do think it's a very exciting area to work in if you're interested in music and culture and yeah i was just about to say it's it's like a pirate lifestyle isn't it I, I was about to say, actually, it's a real double-edged sword because you end up working in the music business, and, and you'll probably relate to this, um, and you're suddenly in this environment that you understand and you're excited by, but then it starts to dawn on you that that's work, and you kind of go, oh, I hope work finishes so I can go and enjoy myself and go and see my girlfriend or go and get some food or X, Y, and Z. And it becomes a job like any other. And it actually does take the shine off gigs after a while because you're all, always constantly there. And 
and it becomes your job. And it's the same if you become a sound man. Yeah, yeah. You might become a sound man and go to college to learn it because that's what you love. It's your passion. You go to gigs all the time and you watch bands. But then put you in that scenario where you have to, I don't know, get to the venue and set up at 7 a.m., 8 a.m. You're there all day until the loadout you know, it's at midnight or it could be two, three in the morning. And suddenly these jobs don't seem so Well, how many fun. happy sound engineers do you meet? <laughs> well, you don't. They <laughs> exactly. hate their, <laughs> they hate their existence. Especially if you're a DJ, they fucking really hate you. And being a DJ, being a DJ, you know, which we'll talk about later, but it's got similar things to it. You know, we'll talk about Kerrang in a bit, but DJing has that same thing. You can have the best night, you can also have the worst night and never want to do it again. You know? Yeah. Because you're there, you're exposed. And a lot of it is to do with the fact, like, at least if you're behind the bar, I have conversations like this with barmen who work in bars where I'm DJing a lot. I say, at least you're A, behind the bar, and B, you've got something that person wants, alcohol. Yeah. When you're a DJ, you're just there, you're exposed, you're vulnerable. They come into your booth, they start going through your records, they're up in your face, they're saying, play my tune, they're getting aggressive if you say no. And it's like, you don't have any bartering tool other than, okay, I'll play your song for you to fuck off. But yeah. then you play it and then they're just on you all night then. Yeah, and also <laughs> just people, you have to deal with people who are just so like drunk and yeah. rude and kind of, you know, I'm going in 10 minutes, so playing play my, my song. tune yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's so out of step with what you're already playing. You think, well, why would I play a song that's not going to work? for you to then just leave and then I'm left to pick up the pieces. But also it's an age <laughs> thing as well. You've got to remember, you know, I didn't join Kerrang! till 2004 when it's, when it launched, um, you know, and, and I, I was older. So, you know, DJing in your forties is a lot different to DJing in your twenties. and things. Like of course. That, you know. Well, late nights, you know, especially if you're driving, in which case you wear a lot of the time. It's like, oh, I can't even really drink or have fun. Then it really becomes like you're clocking in and out, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you get home <laughs> at 4 a.m. and you're just wired. Yeah. Well, dude, I was on tour with Steel Panther the other week and I played to 4,000 people in Oberhaus wow. in Germany. And I, de I DJed between the two bands and as my last song before Steel Panther came on, I was dressed as Wayne from Wayne's World and yeah. I finished my set with Bohemian Rhapsody. So I thought the Wayne's World connection, the film's just out. It's an epic sing-along song. It's going to be perfect. And I just had 4,000 people, Galileo, sing. Yeah. And then after it, even after I'd watched Steel Panther, I'd gone home and I was just lying in my bed, like sober. I wasn't even like tweaked or high. Yeah. But I just couldn't get to sleep till about 4 a.m. because I was just fucking rushing. Like, I was <laughs> yeah. so amped up. And it, that's a hard high to come down from. And I didn't even write that song. Do you know what I mean? So God knows how people like Freddie Mercury actually felt on the Live Aid stage, fucking... Yeah, it's you know. a potent drug, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you I mean, can I see why traveling musicians get into hardcore drugs to maintain that high. And yeah, I don't regret it. I, you know, I've had lots of fun. Uh, you know, doing gigs constantly and DJing and being out and about and going to gigs myself and stuff like that. I've done so much of it over the years, and uh, and lots of it's been fun, but. You know, obviously there's points where just your body goes, no, or you've got to slow down, <laughs> yeah, or, yeah. or like me, you had a child, and, you know, there's just little factors that change the, you know, the whole the whole thing. But there's no shortage of people out there having fun. No shortage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what are you doing when Loz finds you in a pub in Moseley and offers you a gig on Kerrang? Is that what went down? Is that what happened? Uh, yeah. What are you up to at that point, personally and professionally? How are you spending your time? No, yeah, well, I, 
I did that job for quite a while, you know, behind the scenes, and then I got tired of that, and I'd always wanted to do a degree, so I went back to university as a mature student when I was 28, and I did a media degree um, just to do it, just to see if I I could do it, you know, and I got a 2-1, and then came out the other side of university not really knowing what I'd do, but I wanted to do something media-based, and I ended up working for... um, a mobile phone company uh, making ringtones. <laughs> really? Yeah, and it was a real boom business. Everyone had those Nokia phones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you'd they, have songs for the first time. They were like digital replicas yeah. of songs. And I used to have to make the chart, thing. but with single notes, like do, 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 do. You know, it was really weird, weird What job. were you working with? Uh, you mean making the tunes? Yeah, what were you using? Cubase and right. a little MIDI keyboard. Um, and they really liked me there. You know, I started kind of chatting to them all. And then I ended up doing the magazine adverts and making pictures that could go on your phone of all the bands. So I do like, you know, My Chemical Romance. This, And I used to do the adverts for Kerrang! magazine. <laughs> and I started making lots of money for the company just by creating ringtones and pictures that people wanted. I suppose the first memes as well. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. In your own way, like yeah. funny pictures of Gollum. Well, you've always and- been a fan, you know, when you used to see our pictures on Facebook, you've always been a fan of, you know, visual gags. And- yeah, and silliness yeah. and, you know, controversial humour. So uh, I was good at that. And then I became a manager there and, and it was going great for a while. But it's a boom or bust kind of environment they made a lot of money but it just caved you know as soon as technology changed and people could get their own tunes on there yeah 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 it was dead you know yeah um so while that was kind of dying while that company was going down um i met Lars in a, uh, the custard factory in birmingham and he said uh we're starting kerrang radio in birmingham did you already know him no i didn't no. know Lars. But he uh, knew you, assumedly. Or uh, knew he'd often. heard about me from a few people because he was scouting around looking for potential DJs. He had a lot of slots to fill. And they were putting a lot of money into the launch of this big Kerrang! radio rock station in the heart of the country as well, in Birmingham, yeah. which has got a big rock heritage anyway. And they launched it. I remember the weeks leading up to the launch. It was a very exciting moment in Birmingham's cultural history. Yeah. And anybody who, like me, grew up around this area was aware of it, you know, weeks before it finally did land. Yeah, and and it, it kind of, I suppose it dropped at a time, 2004, Yeah, really. And if you think about that... When guitar music was huge. It, yeah, it, it maybe wasn't necessarily Kerrang! guitar music, what we would associate as that, but it was certainly bands like The Hives, The White Stripes, The Strokes... Yeah, there was I mean, a lot of big popular guitar bands around at that yeah, time. Yeah, I was going to go against what you said probably a little bit and said it's weird that it started in 2004 because that was after rock had been booming, absolutely booming from everything from 70s rock to glam to Iron Maiden to then Metallica, Slayer, then into the crossover hardcore stuff, Napalm, Death, and then during the 90s. Grunge, black punk metal, rock. Grunge, punk rock. And then new metal later on, back, yeah. New metal. So Kerrang! launched after that. Yeah. Massive uh, glory days for rock and metal music, probably the height you'll ever get in terms of commerciality mm-hmm. uh, and record sales. You know, you had Headbangers Ball on MTV and things like that. So when Kerrang! launched, it was almost at the start of Britpop and little bits of rock resurgence. But uh, and, and definitely things emerging like pop punk 
and emo, emo start, yeah. starting to emerge and and uh, post hardcore as well and things like that. So, you know, it was definitely a transitional period when for rock and metal when Kerrang started, you know, and when it launched, I remember being quite purist about what it should be. Well, I think you were that up until the final days of the studios in Birmingham, you know. I think you were always the one that very much tried to fly the flag. We should be playing Bring Me the Horizon in the daytime. Because that yeah. was always the fight, wasn't it? Is as that band were clearly one of the bands that were on the up. The station was well, like no, before we before that we... even, before that, I mean I was very much like we should be playing anything that's the Kerrang brand. Yeah. Or has been over the last few years, whether it's Aerosmith, Black Sabbath and A C D C or whether it's Iron Maiden, or whether it's something like Journey, or whether it's... Linkin Park. Yeah, or, or yeah. whether it goes to Linkin Park, or whether it goes to Napalm Death. You know, I don't think... Rockers are scared of their own genre, so I thought, you know, this is a great chance to be eclectic. But then when I got into the radio industry, I didn't realise that these people really do know, I suppose, how radio works. You know, I don't. I came from a music background. Yeah to meet a lot of people who knew how radio works. And it's a lot more about, I suppose... Well, it's like DJing, isn't it? Yeah. It's, you've got to appeal to the masses. You can slip in the occasional spiky track and go left field here or there, but really you want a nice, comfortable overall vibe that invites people in and encourages them to keep the station on as opposed to hear Slayer one minute and go, oh, I'm, that's a bit heavy for me. I'm yeah, going to tap out. Yeah, you've got to, you've got to be careful with listeners because if they don't like something, they might turn off. So then you're trying to create a playlist that you can listen to, has all this eclectic music in it, but doesn't turn people off. And because Kerrang! launched on FM as well, 105.2 FM, that was a big deal. You know, it's broadcasting to a lot of people in Birmingham. So I can totally respect what they did. They started to mix things like indie in with rock and pop punk and old school classics. So you've got this really kind of mixture. And of course, any radio station as well has to reflect, unless it's a classic station, it has to reflect something new that's going on as well. So you've got to take little bits from what's happening in 2004, 2005. And at that time, yeah, you'd, you've got Oasis and Blur, I suppose. Well, it was more like the Libertines, wasn't Sorry, it? Sorry, yeah, the Killers. Yeah, the Libertines, Killers. killers. Even things like Block Sister, Party. Scissor Sisters, yeah, things yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah muse and yeah, stuff yeah. like that colliding with good charlotte and you know all, all the all the bigger metal bands things like that so yeah we did a good job and definitely got a lot of listeners at kerrang when it launched loads of support loads of local support and it seemed like people loved the vibe of it as well irreverent and fun and being able to chat to you about have you know a rock station in birmingham yeah the home of metal it always sounded, and this was, I think, the key thing as to why it was so popular for so long. And as a listener, first and foremost, before being a presenter on there, it always sounded like the kind of place you would want to work, yeah. want to hang out. And it had that old school, as you say, irreverent feel to it. That It was kind of just like anything could happen. Presenters would walk into other shows and just hang out, have a chat. And there, well, yeah. was, there, was, there wasn't like a rigid radio format that you hear everywhere else in the commercial landscape. Well, there was every, a freedom, wasn't there? And yeah, everything else is in London, or you know, every every other opportunity seemed to be in London or somewhere else. So to have Kerrang in Birmingham, um, you know, where there's a bit of media, but as you know, you know, it gets sidelined a lot. So I was really proud of it, 
and really excited by it. And then all these different people were coming on board and saying they loved it. And as you say, the presenters were all clicking and we're all tell like, me about some of those early presenters. Cause you were obviously there from day one. So you got to see all these larger than life characters like ugly Phil and Stuart cable and yeah, I Tim mean, they, Shaw, people who are still regarded with such high reverence by people in this area and beyond. Well, yeah, you realize they're presenters at the end of the day. They could be on any station, really. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, it just so happened a lot of them were on a rock station. And the strength of a presenter isn't just his knowledge of music, it can no. be to entertain or just to be able to make people feel good or comfortable. You know, it, I think people in rock and metal, though, they want to know that you know it and you live it. That's the, the difference. They want to know you're the genuine article. So meeting all these people was nice, but it made me feel like I was an absolute expert. <laughs> right, yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. being horrible to the other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love the presents I've worked with, but it made me feel like an absolute ex- expert in rock and metal, and I'm not. You know, there's people who are more expert than me and know more facts and more own more albums. But in that environment, I felt like, I just, you know, I could just add so much to the station and they got me doing underground shows straight away, like full metal rackets and punk shows and this, that, the other. And Did you enjoy that though? Did you enjoy that feeling of like, oh, I'm the insider, as you say, resident rock expert? Yeah, because I felt like I could go into areas that no one else was going into. They had their green days and their good Charlottes and their paramours and then also the killers and the strokes and the hives. But I could just be playing Dimu Borgir, some black metal, Mastodon, you know. And I was reading in the magazines at the time, you know, Terrorizer and Zero Tolerance and just getting all these bands here. So, yeah, it was a fantastic time. And I was also learning to be a DJ because I hadn't got DJ skills. I hadn't got radio industry skills. I only did one module of it when I went to university and decided I didn't like it because I didn't want to speak. Um, but, yeah, ironically, I ended up being a DJ for you know, it's 15 years, I think it is now. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Your style is so distinct. Um, and I think what people love about listening to your show is, you know, you've cultivated this great on-air persona and character. Was it always that case? Did you have to find that over a course of time? This kind of, you know, the sardonic, very dry. And there's obviously with you, you have that Marmite effect with some people who will listen to you, maybe not understand the humor or the wit and go, God, this guy is fucking boring. Listening to him makes me want to fucking kill myself. Yeah. Then you've got the other people who are like, no, nah, you've got to be in on the joke. He's kind of taking the piss. He's... Yeah. So how did you arrive at the Johnny Doom that we all know and love? Well, that is my kind of personality. I mean, you know me as yeah. well. I'm dry. I'm sarcastic. Uh, I like to chat about lots of different subjects in depth. I like to be controversial occasionally. Um, and I just I honed the controversial aspects down a little bit because I knew that some of the things that I say could be misinterpreted or you could end up on the wrong side of it. Or just not even suitable for broadcast, perhaps. Totally, yeah. yeah. Um, so I kept it silly. Um, but also focus on the music and the importance of the genres and what styles there are and telling people where you could get all this stuff. And then it just naturally kind of came into my style. But yeah, you're right. I'm not under any illusions. I've got a very, uh, a lot of Brummies have a very one dimensional voice without much fluctuation in it. Uh, monosyllabic, um, one tone to it or or you know doesn't seem like there's that life in it that you get from other presenters. as you're used to with most <laughs> radio stations where everything is happening all at once yeah, yeah and i don't the like antithesis that of i that. don't like that i yeah. grew up on john peel exactly and john peel was always like 
Right. Yes, well, uh, here we are. Right. right. Uh, <laughs> next band uh, are from Leicestershire and uh, they play thrash metal. Um, but uh, we're going to have a listen now. You can get this on Derbyshire Records. It's so, you know, that's. Oh, how hang it, on a minute. I seem to just play the record on the wrong speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was very much. Mistakeism just, and all. Just being real, sitting there in the studio with a load of records and then chatting to people and, and getting through. So, so, yeah, but I am Marmite in that respect because I think. As you say, some people just don't get your humour at all. They don't notice the subtleties in it. Yeah. And they just think that you are just this dreary, <laughs> like, kind of... Uh, who's the robot from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Know, Marvin, no. Marvin, right. the depressed robot. They just think you, you're totally downbeat. But there is subtle humour in there as well. There's lots of sarcasm. But you can't do much about that. I'm sure you've faced it yourself. If people don't like you, they do not like you. That's and they it. probably won't be swayed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you you sort of learn that really early on. And I think it's an important lesson to learn is you can't please all the people. If you just go on air as yourself, do what you do and, you know, strive to, I guess, at least be likable. Mm. You know, you don't want to come on air and start berating your listeners. But as long as you're just I, I true to yourself, whatever yourself might be, then a large chunk of the people listening are going to go, this guy's genuine. He's got a certain flair, whatever that flair might be. Yeah, I guess with my show, it was the new music show, so it was a bit more like excited, upbeat. Yeah. Zane Lowe was my biggest inspiration from a broadcast point of view because he seemed to just, A, know so much, but B, present music in such an exciting way yeah, he, that he you did, really feel it? pumped up to hear this new tune that he's going to play in 15 minutes' time. And it almost felt like you're part of this performance with him like in the crowd like a live dj I, I was always jealous of him because he had the different music that he could go to drum and bass in, hip hop more rock, in a, yeah, in a yeah. more eclectic way and people always said to me why didn't you do that you could do that if you want to you could play hip-hop um and the thing not is, on kerrang fuck me you the, remember the hate you'd get well i have played hip-hop on have there you? before yeah i would occasionally play it but it would always meet with certain well, texts and emails that's and... it there's a lot of prejudice for different styles even of music. if it's public enemy and it's yeah. you've got anthrax on the track with them some people will still be like no nah, i'm not having that you know and <laughs> you saw it recently with keith flint you know a lot of the rockers would accept prodigy but if you played them a band or something that sounded pendulum even sounded like prodigy they'd reject it because it didn't have keith flint's front yep. in it you know can so, we talk about him real quick? Yeah, absolutely. What was your um, first introduction to him as a frontman? Was it on the music video Firestarter? Was it live? I mean, how did you find and come across um, the prodigy and then him as a performer and a frontman? Yeah, I mean, music for the Jilted Generation came out in the rave, ravey kind of era, and it was a little bit edgier than the other bands. It had an almost little punk element to it, and I remember people going crazy for that album, uh, even before Fat of the Land came out. You know, that was the album people were raving about, literally. <laughs> um, you know, because they were unique in the sense that everybody else was doing songs about, you know, love each other, ecstasy. And they were kind of, you know, this is our law and seemed to be more against the criminal justice bill. So they had a bit of edge. Um, I still thought they were a bit funny in their rave suits <laughs> and the dancing and things like that. Um, and then when they went more rock, it just seemed to make sense. You know, the press were covering them. They were in Kerrang! all the time. The visual thing was happening. Fat of the Land came out, which is quite a rocky album in its own way. You know? um, what did I think of it, though? Well, coming from a punk band, I thought it was a bit cheesy. You did? <laughs> yeah. Keith Flint, yeah, doing his... His Johnny, best Johnny Rotten impression. Yeah, kind of pseudo-Cockney kind of thing and the image. I, yeah, I'd, I'm too cynical. 
really for for it to seem uh, sincere. Sincere, yeah. It, it just fitted for them at the time, but I also like them and I supported them. And my mate Giz started playing guitar for him, uh, who used to be in the English Dogs and various other bands, and he, he got the opportunity to go out as their live guitarist. Um. And he played some massive gigs. Moscow, I think he played with them. Well, I think the general consensus, whatever you maybe thought of the music, was that they were unstoppable live. Yeah, like one of the world's greatest yeah. live bands. And the whole concept, you know, having an electronic band that was almost like rock and punk mixed together. Um, so, yeah, I was supportive of them. Uh, and my mate went out to play with guitar with them. And then I went to his wedding uh, and I was just having a dance on the dance floor and Keith Flint was next to me dancing and Maxim and Chumba Wumba. So, so, so yeah, that yeah, was yeah. a weird <laughs> night. And then I also went to watch him with Giz um, and he took us backstage and I met Keith Flint and he was just like, all right, and gave me a beer and I nicked some crisps from their rider because I was really hungry. But yeah, it just seemed like a nice guy, you know, but I didn't know him and I wouldn't ever say that I know anyone that I don't, you know, I only met him a couple of times, but Prodigy were good and I... You know, he's going to be sadly missed, I think. And it's sad the way he went. Is, well. Isn't it savage the way, and it's just, it all seems to be 90s guys, right? Like, you know, Scott Weiland, uh, obviously Chester Bennington. I guess he was still 90s. Um, and all these guys, man, Chris Cornell, Keith Flint. What the fuck's going on, dude? Um, it, it's something I can't relate to that much. I mean, one of the things I did in the 90s, especially when I embraced Satanism, I suppose, um, and the occult was to kind of sort myself out for the future, really, sort myself out deeply inside where I was going to make a decision that I wasn't going to let depression get to me and I wasn't going to be beaten down by life and I was going to do whatever I can to keep myself strong. Give yourself the tools to... Yeah, and and Satanists, one of the things, you know... It, not all Satanism's positive, of course, but one of the positive things was love yourself, love life, live it to the full. You've only got one. There's no other. So embrace it and and try and... And keep, respect it, right? And try and, try and, and keep it, going, yeah. yeah. Try and keep going, you know, because, because that's all you've got. And that stuck with me. And as much as I, uh, you know, can empathise with people with mental health issues, um, totally, you know, all sorts of issues, uh, you know, my parents and people like that, you know, have had mental health issues over the years, so I can empathise completely. Um, but it's definitely a place I don't understand fully. When someone like Chester Bennington leaves behind all these children and everything, uh, and you, you just can't totally understand um, and Chris Cornell as well, but you can you can bring lots of factors into it, can't you? You know they've had lots of fame, they've had lots of and drugs, drugs. They've had you know they might be on antidepressants, painkillers, uh, changes in their love life, their financial situation. There's all these things going on underneath that you're not privy to. You don't get to see, just like you don't get to see me when I'm at, at my lowest. Of course, yeah, yeah. Crying yeah. in the darkness. <laughs> well, the internet's a big part of it, isn't it? Is people choose to just project the positive and look how exciting my life is. And you're obviously not going to, I mean, I, I'm fully, you know, respectful of people who do, but actually post about the, the less good aspects of life and say, you know, I've had a shit day today. Yeah. Without moaning few, and kind I of. I see a few people saying that, and it is positive to say it to people occasionally 
Um, Here's what I wanted to ask you, though, because someone who came up through the 80s, what's weird and really scary and troubling to me is that they all seem to be figures from a particular period in time. And if you look at all the 70s, I mean, even the 60s people, either they died very young because of whatever excess, but if they lived, they lived, you know, your Keith Richards, and then going into the 70s with punk, obviously like in glam, even Bowie, people like that, they, none of these people, although they might have struggled and still struggle with mental health issues, none of them have taken their own life from the 70s, from the 80s. And then as soon as we get to the 90s, I guess beginning with Kurt in the middle of the storm, so many of the figures from that decade, be it from grunge, be it from new metal, be it from rave, whatever, it seems to have affected that particular bracket. Yeah, of I've, age got few, group. I've got a few theories on that. Um, you know, they're probably not going to be very popular, but it's kind of like a therapy culture, American therapy culture coming into music, you know, that you're a damaged bird, you're a wounded bird, you know, in a world that you don't understand. Grunge, emo. New metal, about, yeah. All about this kind of self-pity. And... Yeah, but Prodigy weren't a part of that. No, no, not every band is. Some bands are like, get out there and live your life, yeah, you know, yeah, be yeah. triumphant. But there's a lot of ins- insular thinking yeah. in, in rock and With metal. the Cobains and the Cornells and yeah. the Wylands and the Benningtons. And again, you know, someone like Co- Cobain, uh, who started as such an e- enigmatic figure, a great songwriter... Uh, Bleach is one of my favourite albums, you know, it, it's grungy, it's got great lyrics and all that. And then he, he just, you know, disappeared into a druggy kind of self-pity, a morose kind of, oh, nothing's good enough, we've just sold out kind of mentality, which ended in his suicide. And there's a cliche, isn't there, dead at 27, because so many rock stars burn out or have burned out at that age. You know, your Jimi Hendrixes, your Janis Joplins, your kind of Kurt Cobains. And I guess it's all or nothing at that stage. It's kind of your burnout when it's all intense and everything's burning brightly and it's all chaotic. Or you live through that and you wait till your life inevitably calms down, which yeah. it will do. Yeah. But a lot of them go out when they're at their peak and, and, and in the in the in the midst of the storm. Um, but I do think, as you were saying, what it is, what is it about that culture? Well, if you look at the lyrics of Linkin Park and this kind of crawling in my skin and yeah, in yeah, the yeah. end and, and the kind of... Well, Tim from the band Rise Against said something really interesting to me because he knew Cornell and Bennington very well. And he said the thing with those guys is you've got to look at them like lion tamers. They make it seem very seamless and easy to go up on stage and sing about this stuff. But actually, deep down, if you do listen to the lyrics, there's a lot of pain. There's yeah. a lot of inner torment going on there. But because they're presented in this very you know, sleek, professional way, people just kind of sing them and go, oh, you know, these are kind of very low, dark lyrics. But he's OK, because look at him up there. He's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean- that was their great skill, I guess, was making it seem like they weren't in this inner pain. Yeah, but in I mean, fact, of course, they were. I mean, I again, I don't know Chester Bennington. I don't think I've even sat down with him for any length of time. You know, I only met Chris Cornell once. So I've got no idea what these people's lives are like, apart from what you read about them. And someone like Chester Bennington sounds like he had a pretty rough upbringing. Yeah. Uh, he had lots of chaos. He had a bad marriage, didn't he? You know, he had lots and lots of fame as well, you know, which screws you up. You know, fame screws you up. You're always on tour buses. You're never at home. You, you know, you're all 
life's chaotic. So, and we've seen it with actors as well, you know, that drugs come into play and then next minute you, you can lose someone. But I, I think you have to be sceptical as well of maybe a self-fulfilling prophecy, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, like if you just constantly surround yourself with uh, over-earnest, my life's so dark and yours isn't, or my life's so dark, all through your lyrics, and self-pity, then it's not really going to rise you out of it. And it's no. not really going to rise it's your audience out. Isn't it? It's not going to rise your audience out of it, really, either. You no. Know? A lot of a lot of our favourite songs are things that make us feel good, you know, not make us feel... We like a good cry as well. We like to be emotional. But I think the 90s, it, 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 we had a bit too much of that, maybe. We've had a bit too much sourness and, and depression. And thank, thank God for bands like Oasis, you know, whatever people in the rock community want to say about a band like that. They came along at a time when I guess they'd had enough of grunge and American misery. And they're like, no, in fact, fucking I'm a rock and roll star. Champagne supernova. Like I want to live forever. Like let's make rising anthemic triumphant songs because life is fucking all right. And I think even rock's gone back to that in a lot of ways. You know, it goes through fads, of course, rock music. Um, Do you still engage with new rock now yourself? Obviously you're hosting a new music show, so you're exposed to the full spectrum of what's around and out and about right now. Yeah, I like to... Where, get, where are you leaning towards in new music terms? Uh, well, I get sent loads of music and obviously lots of it I don't like. You know, I can be straight up, straight up on that. But I'm still going to play it. I'm going to play it for all the fans. I'm going to play it for all the people who like the Kerrang brand. And I'm going to play it for the people who go to the festivals and go to the gigs and support these bands, whether it's Nickelback, Shine Down, whether it's a new hardcore band, whether it's some black metal, death metal... I'm perfectly cool doing that. You always were as well, I always remember. And you'd always be very honest on air, wouldn't you? You'd never kind of get behind a track if you didn't love it. But you'd still say, here it is, I'm going to play it. Yeah, and I I like to have fun with it because I think that we're all picky and we all like what we like. We all don't like what we don't like. Um, I think the older you get, the more so that's the case as well, isn't it? Yeah, and... And sometimes it's hard because you're just not feeling a genre. You know, I remember when Emo came out. And I know Emo... Started off in hardcore, yeah, because with embrace I remember and right it. to spring and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, I remember yeah. it. But I'm talking about when it came back, you know, Panic at the Disco, My yeah. Chemical Romance, etc. And I, I remember thinking, I don't like the music here. I don't like the music. It sounds like whiny. All the worst bits of punk, all the worst bits of pop creeping in there. I don't like the way the bands presented themselves. I, I was too old for it. I couldn't relate to the age. That's the, the key thing, I think, yeah. isn't it? And I didn't like My Chemical Romance, so I just felt like there's nothing here for me. Um, Do you remember how fucking huge that band were and the reactions yeah. that they would garner from listeners on both sides, love yeah. and hate? Yeah. I was chatting to my mate Steve on the Right Act podcast recently. I was saying they were arguably the last band that inspired that level of a reaction of either fervor or complete fury. Yeah. They there's did. been they nothing really since scene. that, has there? They also split the scene as well. The old school rockers and even the new metalers weren't going to get on board with this new thing. It was too much teenagers' own music. Yeah. Scene kids and Fallout Boy. And then also the metalcore stuff as that started to come through as well. Bring Me the Horizon, Deathcore, all that kind of stuff. Scene kids. And I always hated that term scene kids because yeah. I never really understood it. Yeah, I understood yeah, yeah. punk and I understood goth and I even understood grunge in a way. But when scene kids came out, I went, scene, what scene? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mean having giant fringes and, <laughs> and, 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 and clothing that all seemed to be brands 
and it all seemed to be bought a blue banana. They were just fashion victims. They were really, and I suppose they'd got MySpace and the internet by then. So yeah. everything they were doing was about how you look. So they the, were the, the first, start of social media, the wasn't first it? First selfies, you yeah, know, yeah. And fringes, and I and, never had MySpace, thank God. And I was never into any of that music growing up, so I just missed the whole boat on it. Thankfully, the music changed a lot, you know, in the two thousands, and the way we, the way we get music, the way we sell music, the way we consume it, you know started downloading Spotify, streaming, MP3 players, everything changed. And that's where the rock scene, you know, for me, I just started hearing less stuff that I liked, but obviously there's still loads of great stuff out there. There's music everywhere. If anything, there's too much music. <laughs> there is too much music. And if someone says to you... How many tracks do you get sent on average a day? No, really. I mean, some have stopped sending them because I just like, I can't get on to everything. I mean, when just before Koran closed, I remember every day we'd have the, you know, the big box with all our specific presenter names on and all the mail that would come because people would still mail out CDs at this point. And you'd get, you know, at least, at least half a dozen every single day, wouldn't you? Mm. If not way more. Yeah. And, and you have to kind of almost pick the big stuff the stuff you think is going to be big. And then you've got all the underground bands who you know or are great and you want to support as well. And they're getting in touch with you going, John, can you just play our new single? I'll try, you know, but in the scheme of things, you do try and play the biggest bands and the bands that kind of make the most emphasis and the names that you trust with being good. But as I said, it just seems like there's music everywhere and almost not enough people to listen to it, or not enough hours in the day to listen to the amount of stuff out there. And I do two or three bands myself. Yeah, know? yeah, so, yeah. So I'm adding to it, you know. <laughs> but but yeah, the rock scene, rock scene. As a side note off the back of this as well, mm. obviously the ongoing debate is festival headliners, who's going to fill these shoes of ACDC, Iron Maiden, etc. What's going to happen next? If you could lead into that. I think the rock scene's been in bad shape for a little while. I think it's shifted back to classic rock. That's where I think that rock went over the last few years, back to its roots, you know. You Rival just, Sons, Tyler yeah, Bryant. Yeah, Black Cadillac Stone, Cherry, Cherry, all that stuff, yeah. Um, and it's got a captive audience of kind of 40-year-olds and up. You'd you be know. surprised at how many young people are at those shows, though, because it does seem to be a family-friendly kind of thing. So I you'd, suppose you'd, it crosses over, you'd yeah. You'd have... Parents and children. Yeah, yeah. But people seem to have gone back to this idea of 70s, yeah. early classic 80s, rock. classic rock. That is the sound. You know, we don't want your hip-hop beats. Well, even bands like The Struts, who I think are fucking wicked, and then the obviously hype band of the moment, who I think are not so wicked, Greta Van Vliet. Yeah, they're they're yeah. just a carbon copy of Led Zeppelin, aren't they? But Yeah, well, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah there's just, nothing original but, there. But this stuff does come around again. I'm just a little bit miffed that... We haven't embraced both, you know, like the futuristic stuff, the new stuff, new exciting things, and a bit of classic rock as well. But it seems to have almost split into two camps. Yeah. And that's where we go Planet Rock Radio, Kerrang Radio, and that annoys me as well. I think I'm not dissing Planet Rock. You know, they work in the same office. I yeah, love yeah. the people who work for it. They know you even them. love Wyatt? <laughs> oh, almost. Uh, but... But yeah, it annoys me that you can't bring these things together a bit more, you know, because now we've... But then were they ever together? Would you ever have, say, a Slayer fan with a Corn fan back in the peaks of the... Do you know what I mean? Because I've always felt like it's always been a bit segregated and divided, Rock. It is segregated and divided. 
Because if you look at a band like, say, Bring Me the Horizon forward. going out with Machine Head, remember that time when they went out with Machine Head and they'd get bottled and booed every night? And... Yeah, but what I'd say is, is, is it musically moving forward or technologically moving forward? Or is it or regressive is it, and or is it going stuck in the past? Quick, everyone, we need to run back to the 70s when it was all good and pure and about bluesy riffs and cowboy hats and, yeah. and flares, you know. I don't know whether I want to go back to the seventies. <laughs> you know, I'm very, I am forward. You thinking. were there the first time around. Yeah, yeah. So I'm forward thinking, but then do I want my rock bands to have grime rap in it, or or do I? Want well, maybe you could answer that question. Do you? I certainly don't. I think I'd probably rather listen to grime on its, it's own. It's just grime. Know, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and and not have the guitars in there. You yeah, know, I don't. You know, I play guitar. But I can also see why people using computers have got a limitless tapestry of music to 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 kind of use, and guitarists haven't. You know, when you slab a guitar on something, unless like, you're an absolute virtuoso like a Tom Morello, and then you can well, create new sounds. Well, but, yeah, but but also, but even you, he's gone electronic, hasn't he, with his new solo project? Yeah, yeah, his last one. Um, and I just think that you know, you you. You look at the top music or you look at the music that's making waves uh, in 2019, a lot of it seems to be about image, video. Uh, well, that's the culture we're in now, isn't it? Being a larger-than-life character like Nicki Minaj or even Ariana Grande or, you know, just being just being this kind of, I suppose, Lady Gaga-style thing as well, where you're your own brand, mm-hmm. you, there's just you, you do everything got a larger than life character mad videos and you do a mixture of hip-hop r&b dance but it just gets people in the clubs on the dance floors and you're huge you know that's the kind of thing that every everyone seems to be moving towards and when a band like paramore or a band like bring me the horizon do it as well where they go Oh, we, see you later, rock. Yeah, see you later, see you later rock. Yeah, yeah. You know, we want a piece of this as well. And then even Papa Roach come out with an electronic single or whatever. Yeah. You can, or, or Mark Hopper starts working with chain smokers. You know, you know all these different things. You start to realise that rock's struggling at the expense of these huge characters, who are the modern rock stars. They if, are the modern rock stars. Yeah. Let me just yeah, say yeah. something. I think a really pinnacle thing to to talk about there is Nickelback came out with the song Rockstar, you know, and it was big. I don't know what year it was, but uh, we were still Let's at say two thousand five, six, maybe. Oh, it'd be later than that. You think it'd so? Right. That. But yeah. Um, so Nickelback came out with the song Rockstar, and it was a big hit and whatever. But year, you know, a few years later, Post Malone came out with Rockstar. And it had eight to eight beats and bass lines and the songs, you know, and, and swearing and, and edgy lyrics and stuff like that. And that's the rock star that Kanye West was on about. It's hip hop stars and larger the than machine life gun Kellys. Yeah, and And you know, Motley Crue working little, with him on their new track. That's indicative of where we're at as well, isn't it? Like Yeah, because because because, you know, those things are exciting. That that's about danger. Rock lost its danger somewhere down the line. It it looks a bit kind of safe and, and not very sexy when you go up against your 
your mainstream pop artists. They're getting away with more. They're getting away with more. They are getting away with more. They're getting away with outright sexism with like... Sexier videos, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Darker subjects, maybe a few drugs references. And and, and everybody else is, 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 you know... Whereas Rock seems afraid to do that now, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I said that to someone the other day. Young people will go where the danger is. Yeah, you know, of they, course, that's part of being young, isn't it? You want music that did. your previous generation ain't going to be down with. Because that's what I did. You know, I went for the danger. And, and you might find it in, when I was growing up, gangster rap or, or rave scenes or this, that, the other. But you can't deny that rock has lost something along the way. It's lost an ability to... to Provoke. Get, yeah, provoke and capture those people. And a lot of music, a lot of the music that I get sent now, I just think it's pretty tired, formulaic, and terrible. And if you expect me, to, <laughs> that's uh, a great review. Tired, formulaic, and, and terrible. And if you expect me to be excited about someone like the new Marilyn Manson album, or even Rob Zombie, who's a lovely guy, uh, it's not going to happen because that I, I was listening to that in the nineties, and that was my era where it was fresh and exciting and it's now 2019 so you can't tell me that those artists are still exciting or still should be excited about them even corn or something like that that one album they did was pretty exciting but again that's them going in that direction isn't it the path of totality where they went all dubstep and but yeah that was way better than the previous two or three albums that they'd done well it gave them a little kind of i suppose a little lift in the mainstream for a bit yeah yeah but you know, I mean, the stuff I hear now that I like, a bit hardcore's coming through now. And Do you like Idols? Yeah, 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 that's interesting. I mean, punk's actually doing pretty well at the moment. There's quite a few exciting punk bands I around. that's the social climate, mate. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, there should be way more of it. Yeah. yeah. The, you know, people should be very Culture angry, Abuse, you heard them? Yeah, yeah. Great band. You know, there's some hardcore stuff coming through. There's still some interesting, you know, metal bands and heavy bands. Um and there's plenty of melodic rock as well coming through. Um, so there's no shortage, and I'm not going to be too cynical. But for me, yeah, I feel like I feel like rock had a real handle on the 70s, 80s, 90s. To Up to mid-noughties, let's mid-noughties, say. Mid-noughties, and then it started to just <laughs> lose its grip a little bit to other things, you know. So, Do you think part of the reason why the Kerrang offices closed down and Kerrang streamed back in the way that it did was because of the decline in rock? Because um, No, I think when Kerrang was on air, we proved that people were, were behind the station. We had 1.4 million listeners at one stage, and that stayed pretty stable. And we got lots and lots of... Um, communication from listeners people just seem to like it but yeah things shift um people start to shift what they're into um music started to shift after a while as well and um kerrang was unable to get the advertising revenues people didn't understand it as a brand that's solely it right it's not as mainstream as other brands so you can't get the as much support for it so they then replaced it to Planet Rock, and we went onto the internet. Uh, and then Planet Rock, they got great figures as well. So it's not the stations or the music that seem to have the problem; it's the fact that they need money and they need investment to keep going. You know, and I also would say as well, it's a bit of a uh, it's it's a bit of a wrong think, if that's the right word, or a fallacy that Birmingham's a rock town. 
uh, yeah, Black Sabbath started here. That's 50 years ago, though. You know, but, it? but it's a very multicultural place. It's a very working class place in a lot of senses. And if you want, if I was to tell you off the bat what music people would listen to in Birmingham, more so than rock music, it would be things like dance, R&B, pop. Well, I did an interesting experiment a few Fridays ago with my mate. I was like, let's go and tour all the old school rock pubs at Birmingham and just see like what they're like nowadays. So we did Costas, Scruffies, uh, Hammer and Anvil and Subsides and The Flapper on a Friday night. Every single one of them, and I'm not bad-mouthing those places because yeah, all the yeah. people who work there are lovely. And, and they put good gigs on. And they put it? great events on, but every single pub was empty, dude. Yeah. There was like two to three people in each one on a Friday night. Yeah. I've seen it shift with younger people as well. They don't go out to the clubs and pubs in the same way we did. They do pre-drinks and then go straight to uproar or something like that. Yeah. They're not as au fait with like being in a scene. You know, they'll listen to... Uh, like hip hop, and then like a bit of Bring Me the Horizon, and then Britney Spears, then fucking yeah yeah, 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 and a bit of pop. I wouldn't say Britney, right, no, probably... <laughs> no, for the retro element, Johnny. <laughs> um, but yeah, <laughs> biscuit so, rolling into bloody fucking. So yeah, think. young people just you know they haven't quite got those scenes and that and that thing. So that there's probably a reason for it in that respect. And also, are people going out drinking? It's expensive, you know. It's it, you know, the rock club's doing what they need to be doing. Are they capturing the right people? And also, if you're over 40, like I am. How old are you now, dude? 49. 49, you look fucking good for 49. Um, so if you... Considering the life you've led. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, as you get older as well, you might not want to go to things as much or go out to the clubs and pubs, which are full of 20, early 30s-year-olds. Saying that's no shortage of uh, gigs for over 40s going on as well, especially rock ones. See people all the time on Facebook out at gigs. And there's lots of grassroots support for local bands and things like that, which as much as I'm a bit critical of it, I do think it's nice to see, you know, people putting their own gigs on and battle of the bands and getting all their mates together and stuff like that. Well, I hope that the live industry continues to not only survive but thrive because for me it's the last bastion of culture really and the last place you can go and interact with people of different walks of life because the internet isn't a place where that happens. Do you know what I mean? You can talk to anyone but really people build their own little micro climates Mm. and they stay within that and a gig is the last place I think or just the pub doesn't even need to have live entertainment but they're the last places you can go and interact and have debates and discussions and a laugh yeah and i pray to god that the next generation of people even if they're not drinking alcohol they still do go out and socialize as opposed to just sit on their phone and snapchat their mates and it's the fans the the people who love rock and metal music keep it going and and they're different to other fans because they're not just about the song they heard on radio one or the hook or or what the girl looks like, or the boy looks like, and what fashions they're wearing. Yeah, the song of the week shit. Yeah, they yeah. like music. They like the way the bass player plays, or the particular drummer plays, or that style of guitar. And it's a little bit anal, you know, in that respect, because we're all musicians watching musicians. Or, we're all... or wannabe musicians, yeah. or failed musicians, yeah. <laughs> but that's also rock's little kind of ace card is that it's it's so about the music. And as long as there's bands out there challenging people with ways of playing or or 
creating something heavy or dark or melodic and it's done on guitars, then mu rock music's going to survive. So it doesn't show any signs that rock music's going away. It's just whether you argue that it's kind of ploughing new fields or whether it's keeping itself interesting or whether it's just going back to being something that it was before. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. How's your life changed after the shift in FM, big song and dance Kerrang Radio to, as you say, the more stripped back online obviously now you do your show from your house yeah uh, and you're not in the office every day so you don't have the colleagues to bounce off mm. and i massively miss that element to my professional life you know thankfully i get to have moments like this when i podcast where i still get the engagement with another human but <laughs> the large part of my day as well is spelt on my own at home booking interviews editing interviews and the vibe that that office had in Birmingham was such a great and exciting place to be every day. There'd oh, be God, yeah, new I mean, debates, new discussions, new jokes. Like yeah, it mean, was the best of times. That. I miss the cakes as well. Lots oh, of mate, cakes yeah. in the office and food. Um, but yeah, it was has nice. it been? Has it been a difficult? Sh I guess you know it, it was six years ago now that the station. Yeah, I went did change formats. Was it a difficult yeah. transitional period? Yeah. It, was, yeah, it was dark times because Kerrang had kind of come down a few pegs. Well, a lot of pegs. Yeah, being on FM and everyone kind of excited and going, ah, oh, really supportive. A few haters as well, but mostly supportive. Um, and then coming down a bit onto digital, and then going off digital to internet. And I think now you stream us from the website. You can ask your smart speaker to play Kerrang Radio. You've also got things like um, a free view, 717, or an app on your phone or something like that. But it's not the same. It's not the same as being in someone's car on FM. And, of course, Spotify and the podcast app and things like this have replaced a lot of FM radio as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not everyone in their car now is going straight to the radio, are they? They're going to their own playlist. They're going to podcasts. Yeah, yeah. There's it's a lot a, more stuff to be consumed and enjoyed now. It's changed, and it was a big come down to not being in an office with loads of bands coming in and this, that, the other. And also, I was 
in a dark place for a while, just sitting in my front room going, oh, I've got to do these shows and, oh, you know, what am I going to talk about? But now you adapt to it. As I said, the music keeps you going, the fans keep you going. And uh, even though we've come down a few pegs, our figures are still good. You know, people are still listening and interacting. Not quite as much, but uh, I think the one thing you get from radio which you don't get from anywhere else. It's just somebody chatting, somebody talking, somebody telling you a story, somebody talking about a film or something that's happened that day. Maybe when a band's playing or when an album's coming out. And that's all I'm there to do, really. And I think there's always going to be a few people who like that, you know. But, you know, most rockers will probably just delve into their own record collection and won't even turn on the radio. Well, I noticed that Capital just got rid of all their regional breakfast shows. Did you see that? Yeah. Or Global, whatever the company is. Yeah. So there's obviously now larger shifting tides within the radio industry, isn't there? Not just the rock radio industry. It seems like radio itself is having to tighten the purse strings across the board. Same way as magazines. Yeah. Um, you know, magazines, people still buy them, people still use them, but I don't. I used to be a big magazine buyer. Um, I'm not spotting any yeah. here, Johnny. And I'm not... Um, I'm not buying them anymore because I get that information from my phone. So, yeah, there's lots of shifts in media. And radio, every time people think it's just going to go, it seems to survive. And I think that's the social aspect of it. You know, the fact, as I said, it, it's keeping people going. But it's not It's not a given. It's not a given that radio is going to survive. It's not a given that technology is not going to move and shift in a new direction. Um, look at CD, you know, we were all using CD when we were at Kerrang, and, you know, that was our way of burning things and getting information. It just seems ludicrous now. Well, now laptops don't even have a CD drive, do they? <laughs> Which is insanity, because if you've got all your CDs, you're like, fucking hell, I can't even digitise them without buying yeah. an external plug-in. So you got to move And they're the worthless, time. essentially, now. Same as DVDs. You could go buy any CD or DVD now for a quid. Yeah. And that's how much art, you know, film, music, how much has been devalued in a physical form. And it's that's nuts. it. That's it. You can't help but go with the tide yeah. sometimes. You can, you can say, I'm a rocker, I'm this, I listen to this, I do this, but I'm not like that. I have to shift a little bit with what's happening. Um, and as we know, the world's shifting quite fast and... And all these viewpoints coming together on the internet and making all sorts of things more vocal and politics more complicated. And as I said, people fighting between factions now as well, more than ever, you know, left and right. And, and, and people, YouTubers being famous, you know, and philosophy on YouTube. Influence. Yeah, yeah. So all this stuff's going on, you know. And I try but you're be, still engaged and invested in all of it. Yeah, I try. And you're not going to go out to pasture just yet. <laughs> no, I've, I've got to be. I've got to be interested in the world around. I guess you've me. got a kid as well, so you've got a young child that keeps yeah. you. You know, and is she? What is she now? Seven, eight? Uh, she's nine. Now. Nine. Wow. Yeah, so she'll be yeah. a teenager soon, and then that's going to be a whole new world of. Yeah, I don't want to go there yet, Matt. <laughs> uh, I'm scared about. I'm scared about that one already. You know, going to pick her up outside a nightclub. Yeah, at like yeah. Oh, half man, twelve. It's be every father's worst nightmare. Um, you know, there's all that to come. But the thing is, the one thing I do all the time is, as I said, I try and keep a little kind of humorous spin on life. My dad taught me that. Um, even though I have dark times like everyone else, I try and. You know, just just keep busy, keep little projects going, things to look forward to, films to look forward to. I, I like to look at politics and not take it too seriously. Um, 
And obviously, if I can help change the world for the better or do something for the better, I will. Um, but I don't think those are easy fixes. You know, I don't, I'm not one of those people who's like, if we all just do this, everything's going to be fine. You know, I'm a cynic. Uh, you know, I'm sarcastic. <laughs> I'll never tell you what I truly believe, you know, because I always it's always changing and conflicting. But, you know, yeah. You, you've just got to keep on top of it, on top of life, because it's not easy for anyone. No. And I think the internet and, and all this sharing pictures of ourselves and worrying about how we look and how we present to people all the time is having a negative effect on people's mental health. And that's why, as we were saying earlier in the interview, I'm protecting myself against that, and I'm going to try and protect Lauren against that as well. Well, that was going to be my next question. Are you going to oversee and be quite strict with access to social media and things in that regard um, or are you going to more take the approach of allowing her to perhaps make her own mistakes and learn from them I mean, it's a tough call isn't it yeah it's a tough call because i learned from my own mistakes yeah. you know i used to watch video nasties when i was 12 and 13 and, and you turned out okay yeah and the school got in touch with my parents because <laughs> uh, they really yeah because i was drawing pictures of zombies and decapitated heads at school and i think they thought that might there might be something dark going on at home and i was trying to express myself but it was actually just that the video shop that uh, was in my area used to let me rent anything what's that famous cannibal film uh cannibal holocaust that's the one yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. stuff like that so i was watching pretty grim stuff myself but you know i was able to uh come out fairly okay um <laughs> but yeah i mean i think with young people it's just a balance like anything you can't stop them doing it when they're adults of course but when they're children like anything you know it annoys me when people give 18 video games to children who are 12 13 14 like grand theft auto i think there's good guidelines there's little bits of protection you can put in um while still giving them a bit of freedom to do things as well but certificates are there for a reason you know and so i'm going to protect lauren from certain things but i'm also going to um let her have the freedom to to form herself you know a lot of people say oh is she into metal and rock music it's like no she's into what she's into which could be taylor swift and katie perry one day or it could be sia or the theme tunes from the great showman i don't tell her what to listen you're to. you're not going here listen to megadeth no no she can find that later she she does do impressions of my vocals occasionally Brilliant. And, and and she likes having a little thrash around some black metal if i put it on but Generally, she finds her own stuff. And I think that's a good thing for kids, definitely. Um, musically, tell me about a couple of projects you've got going on, and then we're going to end. I want to get a couple of rock and roll stories out of you to end on some nice, funny anecdotes. But first of all, band-wise, what yeah, are you working on at the moment? Yeah, I always try and do music, um, even if it's a rubbish project that I'm not serious about, or even if it's something with a group of friends where we just go and meet up. Um, I think it's good to keep playing, whether you take it seriously or not. Um, and I always do little projects, always try and get them released and get them out there. Um, and at the moment, I've got two things. Rainbow Grave is my new project, and it's with some guys I've known for years. And it's like a mixture of, I suppose, grungy, nasty, distorted punk um, mixed with psychedelics and kind of druggy sounds as well. So psychedelic, hateful, punky, grungy stuff. Um, which is influenced by some of the bands we loved when we were growing up, like Butthole Surfers, Fantastic, and Drugs yeah. With yeah, Guns, yeah. Stickmen With Ray Guns, and Flipper. 
Um, bit of Melvin's in there. Yeah, Melvin's yeah. in there as well. So, yeah, that's doing okay at the moment. We've got two singles out. We're going to release a new album September time called Know You. Uh, so pick it up on God Unknown Records. Um, and, you know, we've got some good things in the pipeline, you know, European shows and stuff like that. So I'm going to concentrate on that. Uh, and then I've got a little death metal, black metal project in the background as well called Death Fiend, uh, which I've just started, <laughs> a three-piece, which is just... You know, we've got a little lock-up in town with our own studio, our own gear in there, and we just go and have fun, and if it comes to something, it will. Are you uh, still doing Police Bastard? Still- yeah, I still do some punk stuff with them. We lost our drummer, um, so we're just trying to get that up and running again. And we'll do the odd gig here and there, but yeah, I like to keep my hand in with the punk scene as well, because I'll always love the punk scene, always love them. Um, I love lots of scenes, but, you know, that's a special one. That's where your heart lies. Well, it's it's just the thing that started that idea of you can do it. You can get up there. um, You can have a voice. um, You can fight for things and and not be afraid. And and you don't have to rely on the government and, and people to tell you what to do. You know, you are your own authority. So, so yeah, that that's, that's had a big part of my life, but uh, so is rock metal and, music and friends and cider yeah and cider a bit of drinking <laughs> as well a little bit um uh what time's your show on kerrang radio if people want to check you out on there yeah i'm on mondays tuesdays thursdays and fridays 10 to 1 a.m so i have wednesday off you get alex baker then with fresh blood but um yeah my show it's a mixture lots of new music from all the different genres of rock and metal and punk and things like that also lots of big classics and uh, me, me chatter. So, to bring it home. Yeah. For anybody who doesn't know, there's a thing in the radio world called an ident, which is a piece of production that goes between two songs to tie it together. And I think part of the huge success of Kerrang! was its imaging. Yeah. And its branding. Uh, yeah. Our ident's were the best in the business as far as I was they concerned. They were silly, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, so you'd but... have like Rebecca Black going, Friday, and then you'd have the sound of like a window crash and Johnny Doom would come in and go, no. <laughs> yeah. And then it'd be like, is someone getting the best Foo Fighters or something? You'd go, yes. And yeah. it's just a clear way of saying, this is what we don't play, this is what we do yeah. play, stuff yeah. like that. But there was one ident which used to go around all the time and it'd be this deep, gruff, gnarly old sounding dude going what the hell's the name of this goddamn radio station and then yeah. johnny would go kerrang radio he's like kerrang radio <laughs> and i was like that is the best ident ever tell me about the story behind that and you did and it goes like this yeah it's an old story and i've told it quite a lot of times now but i uh, i went <laughs> mainly from me asking you to but, tell it again but i went i went to, down to interview phil anselmo at the uh, academy was it back then or the old hummingbird uh, he was playing with Down, that band Down, and uh, I got an interview with him. And they were really cagey about it. They were telling me straight away, he doesn't like Kerrang! magazine. So they've reported on him in the past, and he's upset with them. So he might be a bit hostile to you. So it's a short interview. Get in there, get out, blah, blah, blah. So so you're going in on edge a bit nervous. Yeah, nervous, you know, and this big dude came down and took me upstairs to him. And we opened the door, and Phil was sitting there, kind of almost on a throne not not a throne but like a chair you know special chair and the room looking was, hard and ominous the room was full of smoke as well because you know he likes the smoke and i went in there and he's like oh dude and i'm like hello yeah yeah just gonna have a few words with you and i was just getting my tape recorder out and being really nervous and he was kind of going who are you from and i was like yeah kerrang radio you know 
And he went, Kerrang, Radio. And then right after that bit that's in the Ident, I went, yeah, I'm Johnny Doom. Uh, I present a show on there. And I used to be in the band Doom years ago. You might know them. It's a crusty punk band. I didn't think you would know them. And he just suddenly stopped and just went, you were in Doom? He goes, God damn it, they're one of my favorite crust punk bands in the world. He goes, guys, guys, and he got the whole rest of Down in there. And he goes, this is Johnny Doom, the old singer from Doom. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he goes, dude, can you go home and get me like an album and a t-shirt and this, that, and the other? Oh my God, and you can party with us later. This is the best. And I had my photo taken with him and I went home and got him some albums, this, that, the other. And he, sh- yeah, he gave me a shout out while he was doing the show, this is for Johnny Doom, you know, one of my favourite bands. Uh, and I even kept in touch with him on the email uh, after that. But yeah, he was just an absolutely massive fan of my underground <laughs> punk band. It's amazing, isn't and, it? Uh, and, and the whole interview turned round and ended up being mates after all that. So yeah, it's great. Incredible. It's so great. Well, Jesse Leach was the same at my live Q&A. He was like, fucking hell, this... we got back on for part two of the show and he's like, guys, the fucking singer in Doom's in it. It's, well, yeah, uh, that know. must be a really special feeling to know. And Laura Jane Grace had the same thing when she came to Kerrang! to do the live acoustic thing. She was like, oh my God, Doom. That must feel cool to know that you, however underground the band was, it made its mark on the industry. Yeah, I mean, Doom for whatever reason are the archetypal kind of anarcho punk band with those ethics you know, the ethics of anti-capitalism equality uh anti-animal abuse um living together in freedom in peace that kind of thing you know that's doom's ethos and even though i've deviated from that in various ways over my time and i left the band and stuff like that that's still how they're regarded now and people know that logo uh, and the way they are, and they're still out there gigging, and I support it, and I love them. I'm very proud of the stuff I did on the early releases. But, you know, um, so, so yeah, it's great to see that, and it's great to meet people. Although, you know, as I said, I'm my own person. and uh, That logo it. was in the Lady Gaga music video as well, wasn't it, on her leather jacket? Do you remember that? Yeah, Telephone or whatever that, it was, and she was like there. That was the guy who's recently made the Lords of Chaos movie. Oh, Joan yeah. Zacklin, was it? Yeah, right, yeah right, it was right. his jacket. Or he got a jacket from someone else. Because he used to be in the band Bathory years ago. He right. used to be the drummer. So he knows the whole scene inside out. So when he did the Lady Gaga video, he said, I want an authentic jacket. You know, I want a proper punk's jacket. Mine. Um, and it just so happened to had the Doom logo on it. So, yes, Lady Gaga, thanks for that. A few extra royalties. <laughs> <laughs> you got any more rock and roll stories we can share from the road less travelled, Doom? Any come to mind of partying with big name rock stars? Um, only the one, the other one that I tell all the time, and that is um, somebody said to me, can you, uh, this is when I was working at the N- NIA, and I was working as a production runner, and they said, John, can you go and pick up Slayer uh, from the, hotel and i went i've only got a tiny car if you got a minibus <laughs> i mean it's tiny my car was tiny like a mazda little sports car and they went no we haven't got a van so you'll have to do it in the car so i went and i got slayer and they crammed into my car like that and i was just driving just looking at them in the back seat all hunched up kerry king jeff hanneman you know um Tom Araya, and it and it and it just looked so stupid. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And I was like, guys, 
I'm going to drive you to the uh, NIA. Is there anything you want to do? And they were like, yeah, stop at McDonald's, man. I don't want, I don't want catering today. I want McDonald's. So I had to take them to the McDonald's on Bristol Road. To the drive-thru? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I've, I've just got Slayer in the back seat. And I'm thinking, God, if I crash or something, I'd kill these guys. Imagine killing Slayer. Do you know what I mean? Or something like that. Or having an accident. I was absolutely petrified. But I got them to the venue. We got the McDonald's. Got to the venue. Uh, and they were fine and watched the show. But I picked up loads of bands. I picked up Trent Reznor, you know, uh, Machine Head. Um, I've even got Chicken for Amy Winehouse before she died. You know, that's the nature of the job. You're backstage. You're in the dressing rooms. Uh, and you don't know who you're going to meet. I remember when R. Kelly came to the NEC. Uh, and he had queue of women going into his dressing room while he sat on a throne as well so yeah you see a lot of different stuff uh, and i've got plenty of stories which i uh, tell occasionally so yeah <laughs> would you ever do a book or is that something you think would be too self-indulgent for you i just don't think anyone would read it because i'm not kind of famous enough um would you to, do it for your own amusement like an online sort of series where you do like say a chapter a, a month and I'd love to do Drip more feed stuff. It that way. Because you like do... writing and you're a great writer. And obviously yeah. now you can't sort of use Facebook for that. I'd, I'd like to do more spoken. I'd like to do more vlogging stuff as well. You know, I do watch things like Joe Rogan and I do watch um, people having magazine shows online and things like that. And I've always thought it'd be nice to chat and just talk out these subjects between yourself. But obviously it's putting yourself under fire as well. You've got to be knowledgeable. Otherwise you could just totally make a ham-fisted job of it. Um, I'm one of those people who's an extrovert who wants to be out there, but only to an extent. I like my privacy as well. I like to be hidden from things. I, I couldn't stand being a celebrity. Just everyone on you all day long. You know, I think it's nice to have a balance. But, uh, but yeah, I do want to I do want to keep doing things, and I do want to keep out there. But, uh, but I'm, as I said, I also like to be able to just shy away from it all start a podcast look look well, how easy it is this is it you've got the you've got the equipment you've got the capability and i've got so much more to give you have <laughs> so Johnny, much more to chat about i love you brother yeah and thanks, i just want to say as a final thing like you were always really good to me when we worked together you're always like a bit of an older brother figure looked out for me advised me and um, i'm grateful for that and i you know i'm really glad that we have our friendship and that i got to work with you yeah, good luck, mate. I good did. luck. It's all about just filling your life full of these experiences, keeping going. Uh, you don't have to make a massive impact, but you know, just as long as you are kind to people, polite, and 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 get some things done, then that's good, in my opinion. So yeah, thanks, mate. <laughs> It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 